0: Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the podcast The Humanities, in a session from our 2018 programme. Big thinking philosopher A.C. Grayling has ranged widely in his books to date, among them Towards the Light, the story of the struggle for liberty and rights that made the modern West. I'm going to start this all again, so just start again. Kia ora. I'm Ann O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, The Humanities, from our 2018 programme. Big thinking philosopher A.C. Grayling has ranged widely in his books to date. Among them, Towards the Light, the story of the struggle for liberty and rights that made the modern West, Liberty in the Age of Terror, The God Argument, The Age of Genius, and Democracy and its Crisis. He is the founder of the private New College of the Humanities in London, an inveterate traveller and compelling public speaker. With Hannah August, he discusses the evolution and importance of education, humanism and the humanities, all of which have informed his writing over the last 30 years. We hope you enjoy listening.
1: Perhaps we could begin um, by... The word humanism has different meanings in different contexts, and I wonder if you could tell us what it means to you, how you would define
2: it. Well, the contemporary meaning of the word uh, humanism uh, is an ethical outlook that is not premised on a theistic or religious uh, basis. So um, humanism today is very naturally the kind of view that somebody who is not religious or who is an atheist or agnostic might take in thinking about how we relate to one another, how we try to build a, uh, a community in which individual lives can, can flourish and be good. So I like to describe it as a, um, it's not a doctrine, there are no do's and don'ts in it, except one which is think, think for yourself, that's the one adjuration. Uh, but Uh, The the, the principle that underlies it is the idea that if we approach one another, all the great diversity of human nature and human interests and needs with sympathy and with generosity, uh, then we would have a good chance of getting on with one another. Now, there are two important things to say about that. One is, of course, on analogy with what they say about having an open mind, You know, it's a great thing to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. So obviously, you've got to have standards, uh, and you can't be sympathetic and generous to murderers and terrorists and things like that. So you've got to have standards on the one hand. And that is provided by a very nice thing that John Stuart Mill said in his wonderful essay on liberty. He said... The harm principle, the principle that we try not to harm our fellows in the human story, should govern our interactions with them, should govern what case we can make about how we live and what choices we make. So that's, that's one very important thing. But the other is that even though people are, are very diverse, very different, have lots of competing and sometimes conflicting aims and desires in, in life, they also share a great deal at, at the base of life. Because we're all social animals, very few of us, and you have to be pretty weird if you're one of the few, like to be cold or hungry, or alone, or in pain, or deprived of, of freedom. And so we we understand what the basis is of a, a good ethical approach to others. And humanism is about encouraging that and fostering that, fostering that that sympathy and that generosity. And that needs Education. It needs awareness. It needs fostering the insights that one can have about our fellows uh, in in humanity so that we can treat them with respect and with uh, courtesy.
1: So, I want to come to education in just a minute, um, but. Is humanism therefore preferable to some sort of religious outlook?
2: Oh, emph- emphatically. Yes. <laughs> I want to be quite neutral about this. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, If you just consider, if, if everybody in, in the world was was a, a humanist, small age or big age, uh, and didn't think that they were in possession of a truth that other people ought to be coerced into agreeing with, and then I, I think our world would be a more peaceful and a more cooperative pra- place. So. You know, sometimes people say about my college because uh, I have a a bunch of friends who are all visiting professors at the college. They come and give a series of lectures there, people like Dan Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Stephen Pinker and so on, and they're all atheists. And people say to me, is your college an atheist college? And I say, no, Uh, yes. But no, it's not an an atheist (laughs) college because we we don't exist to tell people what to think. We're in the business of teaching them how to think. And we have a, a deep belief in rationality, that when people you know, have been exposed to good argument and challenge and, and, and to an understanding of uh, other viewpoints, that they will come to see the world in a fundamentally humanistic way.
1: So is, a, is religious faith incompatible then with rationality, with, with the type of training that you give at the
2: New College of Humanities? Um, well, a great philosophical answer coming up here. Yeah? Mm. Yes and no. I mean, uh, it, it n- no in the sense that, of course, if once you've accepted a premise or a set of premises. I mean, supposing you, you accept as your premise that the universe contains uh, supernatural agencies of some kind, gods and goddesses or something, you could then infer with logical rigor um, how you are to behave. You, know, you might end up thinking that you have to sacrifice goats and you know where special clothing on Fridays, or whatever you think will be a good answer to that way of thinking about the world. So you can apply rational thought to a world picture that you've chosen. But the world pictures in question tend not themselves to have been chosen on a a rational ground, but on non-rational grounds. Now, non-rational is not quite the same thing as irrational. I mean, to be irrational is to know the facts and to act or believe contrary to them. But the non-rational part of our natures, our emotions, for example, are tremendously important to us. You know, to to love, uh, to be loved, to have friends, to feel a sense of community with others, to really respond with uh, great pleasure and joy, to beauty, to natural beauty and other kinds, to music. Those are things which enrich us. If one were able to use the word spiritual in a non religious or, or, you know, sort of a spiritual sense, but to to denote something about the complex of our emotions and thoughts, then that part of us is the most important part of us. But it is out of that, that non-rational part of us, that our beliefs and commitments tend to come. And so for people who have a religious orientation on the world, that would be a very large part of the source of that feeling, but also their upbringing as children have to remember that children, for very, very good reasons, evolutionary reasons, are very credulous. So they believe in the tooth fairy and father. I hope this is not bad news for anybody. No tooth fairy or father Christmas. Uh, and, and God or gods and so on. Uh, the tooth fairy and father Christmas tend to vanish at about the age of 10 or nearly 10. But the God thing stays on because of church spires and you know, bishops and royal weddings and, you know, mosques and what have you. And so it all seems as if um, it's serious and the grown-ups do it, therefore there must be something to it. And so little children believe it. Of course, it's good that they, they believe what the, the adults in their circles tell them when they're very small, because then they tend not to fall off cliffs and things. When they become teenagers, they don't believe anything that the adults in their circles tell them. And also, when you're, you know, in the courting years... Um, horniness is very incompatible with religion so it tends to kind of you know <laughs> fade away a little bit and then it comes back later on in life when you lose your job your parents die you've got a big tax bill you can't pay and then you think you run back to church you know because you think well that's when I was happy when I was little and what, what happens when you get there is that you meet lovely people who welcome you and you've got a whole bunch of new friends and so you feel very warm and and you transfer it to the religion Although empirical studies show that when people go back to religious belief in, in later life, in adulthood, it tends not to stick all that long. After a bit, they're sitting in the church and they're thinking, really? And then, then they sort of drift into what I call the feng shui tendency. <laughs> they start reading their astrological forecasts again. It's a bit like that, that, that triptych, you know, the young man of, of uh, 20, know it all. And then the middle-aged man of forty say it all, and then there's the old retiree sitting on a bench thinking, "Oh, bugger it all!" <laughs> <laughs> so, um,
1: am I sensing that perhaps one of the more problematic religions is Christianity? You, you talk um, about the church, but also about religion. Yeah. Is, is, is Christian religion what you're meaning? When no, you're it's all religion. I, yeah. I think
2: I think all religion has a lot to answer for, uh, and. Uh, I mean, you know, look, um, a a, a very deep, a very profound commitment to a particular way of seeing the world which helps you to navigate that world and to uh, give you a kind of framework for what you feel uh, can be a tremendous source of solace and, and guidance. And it could be anything, you know, it could be a, a lot of people who were very, very committed to communism in the 1920s and 30s, for example, in the fight against fascism, found a huge amount of, of comfort out of that commitment and out of the comradeship of other, of other communists around them. I know um, I had some um, uh, colleagues uh, when I was teaching in Oxford who were by then emeritus, but who had themselves been... Uh, you know, very big in the Communist Party before the Second World War. And they spoke with great affection about those summer schools they went on. And that was just parallel, really, to being involved in a, a, a religious community. Because, of course, the sense of community is really what's doing the work. Mm-hmm. But also the sense that you've got a kind of, um, you know, kindly presence in the sky. If things go wrong, you can you can pray to it. So it's... The, but, but that view of the world is, is also extremely fruitful in unkindness, cruelty and exclusion, when you look across the landscape of history at uh, the work uh, done by religion, well, it is written somewhere, we shall know them by their fruits. Mm. And my word, there can be some pretty rotten fruits there.
1: So do you feel on the whole that we'd be better off without it? Yes, much. Yes. Right, okay. Well, how are we going to achieve this?
2: <laughs> well, uh, we, we'll come to, if we're coming to education in a bit, I think that little by little, you know, it's a, it's a really astonishing thing that uh, a, a religious commitment and observance has uh, overall, well, it fluctuates from time to time, but overall, it has declined over time. It tends to be much lower in more educated communities from the 18th century Enlightenment. Religion and the concomitance of religion, that is, religion-inspired strife, uh, for example, has, de- has declined in those parts of the world, think of them as the Western world, of the liberal democracies, which would be most influenced by, um, mm. by, by the Enlightenment. And if you, if you, you know, fly up to the moon, figuratively speaking, and look at our planet, I mean, you notice that we are living through a, a, a dreadful tragedy in the Muslim majority world at the moment, where there is a huge amount of strife and it's internecine, it's, it's Muslim on Muslim. Most of the deaths, most of the fatalities, most of the mayhem is occurring within the Islamic world. The terrorism that we experience uh, in Europe, in France, Britain, and um, uh, in, in the US uh, back at the beginning of the century are splashover effects uh, from from this very, very bitter, very vicious opposition. Because of course, the closer you are in some respects to people, Uh, in outlook, the the more bitter the divisions are between them. You know, there's there's that joke about the man who sees somebody just about to jump off the Queensborough Bridge in New York, going to commit suicide, and he rushes up to him and he says, oh, don't jump, don't jump. They get chatting, they find out they're both from Georgia, hooray. They're both Southern Baptists, hooray, hooray. Uh, They're both in the uh, congregation of the Reverend Jones, hooray, hooray, hooray. And then he says, oh, are you the... Prayer book of 1860 or 1870 and the guy says 1860 and the other one says die you heretic and he pushes him off the bridge well this is an example of closer you get the more the more bitter the struggle
1: so given that i mean could we do away with the abrahamic faiths but keep something like buddhism would that work
2: well buddhism is not a, a faith well would well, be more accurate uh, in the um sort of fundamental tradition of buddhism it's a philosophy not a faith Um, small vehicle uh, buddhism for example is very very philosophical there there is no god there are no um, uh, supernatural beings in mahayana buddhism which is spread through tibet and china and japan it's accumulated a lot of uh, you know supernatural entities but in its in its heart it's a it's a philosophical outlook and Gautama himself says to his disciples don't make me a god and don't turn this into a religion this is a a practice, this is a way of thinking about life and and the world. Very, very much a a philosophy. So is Confucianism, so is Jainism. These are outlooks without deities, without a a faith, without having to to give up something um, in obedience to or subservience to something else. Never forget that in Christianity, one of the great sins is pride. In fact, the very, very first sin in the Judeo-Christian tradition is the disobedience of Adam and Eve because they wanted to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. So the first sin was disobedience. So to be good is to be obedient. Uh, Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Give up your will and let something else, the system, the thought, the dogma, do your thinking for you. The word Islam means submission. So in these two religions, and by the way, Christianity and Islam that, you know Islam is a sort of syncretist uh, uh, outlook which emerged out of Judaism, Christianity, you have to, forget, have to remember that the area in which uh, um, Islam blossomed was an Nestorian Christian uh, area of the world, but sort of quite rich in its Christian tradition at the time. So it's very syncretist. And they are both of them young religions; they're less than two thousand years old, and they're very different from religions beforehand. I mean, the very word religion, religio, religere, you know, in Latin means to bind. We get our word ligature from the word religion, or uh, from the root of the word religion. And in Rome, for example, uh, religious observance was with great public uh, ceremonies and and. and uh, 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 you look know, kind of at marches and, and um, celebrations to bring together, to bind, religare, all the different languages and ethnicities and cultures and outlooks of the vast Roman Empire. There wasn't a private internal observance. Orphism was the mystery cults were, and the Christianity borrowed from them. So did Islam. The idea there's a personal God and you have a personal relationship, but what you must do is you must believe, you must obey, you must submit. Thy will be done, not my will be done. And that, of course, um, came again. Sorry, I'm going on a bit long. But in 313 uh, AD, the Emperor Constantine decriminalized Christianity. Christianity had been viewed with some suspicion and there had been periods of persecution of the Christians because they were regarded as atheists. They wouldn't take part in those public celebrations of worshipping the emperor or Jupiter and so on. But his mum was a Christian, you know what mums are like. So he um, decriminalised Christianity, 313, the Edict of Milan. In 380, do the maths, that's not very long afterwards, the Emperor Theodosius I made Christianity the only official religion and the only permissible religion in the Roman Empire. Mm. And for 200 years afterwards, the Christians did everything they could to destroy and expunge classical civilization. Over 90% of all the literature of classical times, they smashed down the temples, used the bricks to build their churches. They did to uh, the classical world what ISIS had been trying to do in Iraq to Palmyra and places, but they did it for two centuries and and tried to expunge as much of that as possible. There's a wonderful book uh, um, just uh, published last year. uh, about this, called the darkening age, the beginning of the dark ages, and this great assault on, on classical civilization. And the, the, the thought uh, is captured really in what happened in 529 AD uh, when the school of Athens, founded nearly a thousand years before by Plato, the academy, was closed down because it was teaching, quote unquote, pagan philosophy and not the truths of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. So, you can see that there was a caesura, a great uh, uh, step change in the history of our civilization, Western civilization, at that moment. Of course, later, monks, you know, in the absence of television and football and so on, they had, uh, um, you know, one great task which was what remained of classical literature to copy it and pass it on. But that only started a couple of hundred years later, a sort of rescue mission on the remnants of, uh, of, of what had been a great tradition. And between the highest period of of classical antiquity in the 5th century in Athens and the Edict of Thessalonica in 380, at the end of the 4th century of our common era, nearly a thousand years, classical civilization, Stoicism, the philosophy of the schools of of, uh, uh, Athens, the great literature of Greece and Rome, the wonderful complex uh, civilization that had flourished then, got a real jolt and for some centuries was dragged down by the hegemony of a religious outlook.
1: So what you've just outlined is quite a bad thing
2: <laughs> that Christianity achieved,
1: but I want to go back to the idea of religion as a kind of bringing together, mm-hmm. as, as providing a sense of collectivity, mm-hmm. and um, because it seems to me that that can be one of the redeeming features of religion um, is that arguably where we are in the world today, we've lost a sense of community and collectivity that potentially we used to have when we would all go to our local church together Um, and you would know your name. I mean there's terrible rates of depression in the UK, particularly I know in terms of older people feeling incredibly isolated because they don't have that sense of community anymore. Um, Everyone's quite Atomized, and is, how can we, if we don't have uh, religion anymore, if we don't have a kind of church rather than religion, um, how do we replicate that?
2: Well, f- firstly, I'm a little sceptical uh, about whether it's really true that, that we, for the great collective, mm. we have really lost that, that sense of community. Huh? Um, I think some of the things that um, we used to rely on family and, and, and local community to do have been... Um, t- taken over by uh, other organisations like, for example, the state with some some degree of welfare provision. Which means, actually, however much we might complain about it, that it is much less patchy than philanthropy and also, given that not all families really have the resource and the competence to help people, their, their own members uh, always, it's a much more uniform way of doing things, so that's, that's one thing to say. The other thing is that there are different forms of community now. The pub, you know, going with your mates to the rugby game. Um, uh, all, all that goes on uh, as well. I mean, we, we human beings are social animals, and we do, we do need our, our contacts with others. And when uh, people, individuals, become isolated, it, it's a very troubling thing for them and for others in society. But I, I think it's, a, it's probably... uh, much less of a phenomenon in our society than we think. And in an age of greater um, flexibility and openness in our social relationships, we've come to realize the importance of a very great truth, which is this. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have a warm, loving family who live in another town.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) <laughs> um so in that case let's come to education um because obviously having a um Having uh, having had a good education can be one of the things that provides you with solace. If you are in a different town from your family and perhaps you're feeling a bit lonely, pick up a book and apply the the principles of interpretation that your good education has taught you. Um, How do we achieve that? You obviously have set up the new College of the Humanities. This is education at university level, at tertiary level. Should it start earlier?
2: Oh, there's no question. I mean, I think the the really key uh, places for education, for primary education, is absolutely vital. Uh, we should we should invest in it hugely. We should we should pour resources into it because that is the great opportunity that we have. You know, you know what kids are like up up until puberty. They're absolutely horrible afterwards. I speak as the father of multitudes. But uh, when they are. Um, you know, young, they're so delightful, they soak everything up, they're so interested and energetic, and therefore they are ripe for, you know, giving them every opportunity. And primary school teachers are very hardworking. I think they're among the most important people on the planet because they can have such a, a wonderful, uh, um, you know, influence on, on youngsters and, and make them, give them um, a, a kind of expanded horizon for all that eagerness and interest that they have. Secondary education, very, very important as well, although I think the way we educate um, adolescents is, is wrong. We make them get up too early in the morning. Um, we, we, we don't let them really do it in ways that m- go with the grain of their, of their complex and, and uh, sometimes confused and highly hormonal, you know, sort of situation. So, that there should be much more creative and, and uh, um, imaginative ways of making education inviting and rich for, for adolescents. Tertiary education is not really the place where we should be doing social engineering. I'm a great believer in social engineering because I think education is the one thing that can really move people on, out of poverty, out of you know, uh, difficult backgrounds, into real realms of possibility. But by the time people come to tertiary education, well, society has a, has a lot to answer for here too, because uh, economies are looking for people, are looking for foot soldiers for the economic battle. You know, so they want. Uh, actually, I'm not so sure they want educated people. Educated people are thoughtful, bolshe, ask questions. You know, tend to be a bit independent-minded. What they want is trained people, people who are trained to do certain tasks, uh, all, all, all the way from just. The basics of numeracy and literacy for perhaps working in uh, commerce or industry to people who are trained vocationally in professions, lawyers and doctors and uh, and the like. Aristotle said, "We educate ourselves so that we can make a noble use of our leisure." Now that is an idea about what the value of education is that would. You know, make any education minister in any government gasp with disbelief now because the whole point about you know, the ROI, the return on investment that you're going to get from pouring money into education is that you get a trained workforce and therefore what we call education these days is far too focused on getting a job having a career. Now look You know, I say to my students, I say, look, you know, however much your parents love you, they do want you to leave home eventually and do your own washing. So you're going to have to be able to get a job. That's, you know, uh, and therefore you need to be sort of ready um, for, for the world of work afterwards. But you have to remember you're not just your job. You're not just your career. You're also a neighbor, a friend, a lover, a parent, a voter, a traveler. You're all sorts of things. And what you want to do is you want to drink from the fountain of uh, uh, the humanities, even if you're studying science, physics, engineering, IT, it doesn't matter. You should always remember to know something about our history, to have reflected philosophically on the great questions that uh, press on us when we think about our values. uh, To be a reader of literature, after all think about it, literature is, is... thousands of windows into other people's lives. You know, you can be, you can snoop on the experience of your fellow human beings, beautifully rendered by some of our greatest writers, and help you to understand what other people are like and to help you to understand yourselves. There's is something very essential, therefore, uh, about being educated as well as trained in our world. So, I absolutely agree with you, but is it a luxury
1: that is really realistically not available to most people in the world that we currently live in. And how, I mean, how can we as teachers in universities reconcile uh, our view, which you've just articulated, with the fact that that is an education that fewer and fewer people are actually able to access?
2: Um, Well, again, the sort of yes and no kind of... um, philosophical answer. Um, Yes, you're right. There are far, far too many of our brothers and sisters in the human story living in places of poverty and conflict who just don't have the opportunity for for this kind of thing. That is not a reason for our not uh, hungrily pursuing it in places where we can do it. Because in the places where we can do it, we might be able to inspire people uh, to an interest in getting that opportunity for people who don't currently have it. But but certainly I don't think anybody can be happy and content knowing that, uh, uh, that there are people in the world who are just walled off from these opportunities. Even if we just do a little to, to help, uh, we should. Um, for example, I, I helped to run a little school in Sierra Leone. Now, some years ago I I'd read because I do some work at the Human Rights Council in Geneva at the Human Rights Commission, and I'd read a report that the UN produced about the transforming character of education on women in Africa. Now, girls and women, if they, can, if they just have the basics of literacy and numeracy, it transforms their lives. Among other things, they have fewer children and the children are healthier. They can manage their own resources. They, end, uh, th- they can start controlling their own lives and not being the property of, of men. So I became very enthusiastic about setting up a girls' school. And I was told by no lesser person than I and Hersey Ali that under no circumstances should we set up a girls' school. It must be co-educational because the boys and the men in their communities would really give them a hard time if it was just for them. And she said to me, If you want to ensure that girls get an education in Africa, the, the one key thing that you must never forget and you must make sure you do is you must provide a toilet with a door. Because that's the one thing that makes it possible for girls to go to school once they get to puberty. And that kind of realization—it's really, you know, sort of left field. You wouldn't—I wouldn't have thought about it in a million years because a bush is good enough for me, you know. But uh, if you think what difference to education a toilet makes, it really opens your eyes. So we can all make a little contribution like that, but in our own uh, uh, zone of possibilities, we should really, really encourage people to see that um, what, what it would mean for them and for the expansion of their uh, of their Uh, appreciation of of life and how they live their own life and what they can do with their fellows really turns on how welcoming they are to these opportunities I can give you an example everybody here was reading Proust in the Bath last night so they'll remember that there's an anecdote told by the narrator about how he was taken as a little boy to play in the Champs Elysees by his nanny and he hated it Champs-Élysées, a big wide road, lots of traffic, it's dusty and noisy. didn't like it at all. He said, if only I had known All the stories about the lovers who had strolled up and down under the trees here or those who had sat on the benches and wept with grief or seen the triumphant armies marching up the Champs-Elysées to the Arc de Triomphe, if only I'd known all this, the place would have leapt into life like a great theatre of the world with all these wonderful human realities and and stories and suddenly it would have become vivid, I would have loved it, I would have run to the Champs-Elysées every morning to, to relive all this wonder. That is what an education gives people, if they will read, if they will think, if they will be open. The world springs into life and suddenly it all comes to have such rich meanings and and significances. And that's what one wants to encourage uh, as many people as possible to have. And by the way, not just in the school years or the university years, but lifelong.
1: So let's come to the new College of the Humanities and um, obviously you teach English there. Um, I'm intrigued that you don't teach film studies um, which, you know, is a medium that we've all grown up with now and um, gives us those stories in exactly the same way as books do. Can you talk to that a little
2: bit? Yes. Uh, First, just just a little run-up to to the the sort of point of founding the college. Um, I spent, uh, you're going to see from this that I'm no mathematician, I spent the first half of my career teaching at Oxford, the second half of my career teaching at London University, and now in the third half of my career, I'm running this this college, which uh, I dreamt about for for a a long time, because I thought, thought to myself, so many of our undergraduates have more or less forgotten whatever it was they read or talked about when they were undergraduates, it's as if the partying and the love affairs and the broken hearts and so on, much, much more important in their undergraduate experience, and they are important, by the way, um, much more important than, than what they learned. And what they learned didn't change their lives, didn't really make them keep saying, wow, really, you know, and having these insights. Um, or too few of them did. And I thought that was because we were, we were losing sight of a way that the humanities should be uh, studied. I nearly said taught, but actually it's, it should be a collegial enterprise between tutor and, and, uh, and pupil. And when I started teaching at Oxford, we were still teaching a weekly essay-based one-to-one tutorials, and that is the gold standard for the humanities, because when you work with it, that individual mind, how that mind works, what the grain is there of that character, you can really work with it and you can, and you can you know, create opportunities for, for that individual to really blossom. And because that's a very expensive model of teaching in time and in money and in effort, it was starting to, to fade out. By the time I, I moved from Oxford to London, uh, already I was teaching two and three students in a group instead of one. Now, you might think, well, so what? Um, Well, the answer is, imagine interviewing two people simultaneously for the same job. Just imagine that. It's a completely different dynamic. It's a very interesting um, psychological uh, um, point, this, about how how you can work with somebody. Even somebody you rather dislike or they dislike you or something, you can still get something out of it. Of course you want students also to have their lectures and their seminars and to be in groups where they exchange ideas with other students, but at the core of it, if you could do this, so I wanted to keep that alive. That was one. And also I wanted to do it for the very, very central humanities, philosophy, history, literature, because we also do uh, politics and art history and law and economics, but uh, because I, I think that those social sciences bear on the same question, the great Socratic question, How should we live? What sort of person should I be? What really matters in our lives? This, you know, very often I describe the humanities as the great conversation that humankind has had with itself about those very questions. And to encourage the students to break boundaries between them, to be philosophers and historians and literary critics all in one, to see the connections there. So a, a, a kind of core pursuit where we are genuinely um, colleagues, so it's a college. We're working together to try to get the very best to really suck the pith out of this great fruit which is the wonderful accumulated uh, uh, discussion that humanity has had on, on these matters. So that, that, that's what I wanted to do. And for a long time, of course, it was just a dream. of how the heck do you do it? You know, it seems very difficult. I tried to persuade my colleagues at Oxford to introduce new degree programmes that would try to satisfy that. I it in London. And, you know, higher education is very, very, very conservative with a small c. It's very difficult to get changes there. Um, so I began to think, well, I have to do it uh, myself. Unfortunately, fortunately, I had a friend, when I was a student at Oxford, I had a friend who went on to become a very, su- very successful, he made a bucket of money uh, in business. I said to him one day, you must be very good at business. He said, oh, no. I don't know anything about it. I just know one thing, which is that if you have a good idea, find the right people to carry it out. That's a brilliant insight. I thought, oh, hooray. All I have to do is find the right people. And they can do it. You know, I can just tell them, say, here's the vision. This is what I want. Make it happen. You know, Just get the right team, make it happen. So that was number one. Number two was, I spent a few years as a um, fellow of the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos. You know, every January, all these big businessmen and politicians get together in Davos or hot air. You wonder that the glaciers have survived this long with that. <laughs> but there were, there were some, um, you know, sort of aspects of it which were sort of quite positive. And I was on a committee discussing how we might uh, raise the level of literacy among women in the Middle East, because it's only 51%, and that has a big drag anchor effect on society in the Middle East. So we thought we'd come up with all sorts of schemes. So we came up with a really beautiful scheme for daytime television literacy classes and then we started thinking about where are we going to get the money? And in our group, and the group was it blokes in suits, and there was one young woman, an Egyptian woman, and she said, excuse me, you men, whenever you come up with some idea, you always then begin to discuss where are we going to get the money? But we women say, what have we already got to hand? I thought that was such a brilliant insight. Then the third thing was, I was visiting a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania, one of the Trico colleges at Fairbremont. I was being shown around by an undergraduate, and she said something to me that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. She said, uh, we have an honor code here among the students that when we get an um, assignment back from our professor, we don't ask, what grade did you get? We ask, what did you learn? I thought that was so beautiful. That is exactly what what you know, students at an institution should be asking one another. What did you learn? Think of that. You know, if they were all asking one another that question all the time, that's going to be the central aspect of the ethos of this place. So now I've got my, my three little inspirations. And I was lucky enough, lucky, lucky, lucky enough, um, that I had a colleague uh, on the International Humanist and Ethical Union. Uh, uh, NGO at the Human Rights Council in Geneva who was a very wealthy individual who'd retired early, had made a huge amount of money out of software. He'd retired and he'd devoted himself to human rights activism. And he um, just happened to own a chateau in the Midi in France, the Chateau de Bedway, beautiful place near Figeac, And I was visiting him there real hardship. you know. We were wandering around the Rose Garden together. And I was telling him my dream. He said, okay, I'll give you some money to to start it off. And it's just gone from strength to strength mm. since then. It's just a very, very lucky day, all down to roses.
1: So there was some controversy when you started it, oh, yeah. started out because the fees were yeah. quite a lot higher than yeah. they were for any other university in the UK at the time. Um, why was that and how, how did you reconcile that with, you know, the core of your mission?
2: Yes. So there were two aspects to, to that. One, one was the fact that uh, an independent uh, higher education institution, independent of the mainstream government provision for higher education. I should point out to you, by the way, that the word private is misleading because all universities are private. They're all self-governing institutions, but uh, um, all of them, all but a couple get uh, some public subsidy or, in some cases, a lot of public subsidy. I wanted to set up an institution that that didn't rely on public subsidy at all. And we were um, hit, uh, just months before we opened our doors, by a change of government, uh, and um, a woman called Theresa May (laughs) became Home Secretary and she, she changed the visa regime for students. And we suddenly lost all our overseas students couldn 't get them because we didn 't have the right status for them and you know we 'd begun I had salaries to pay, and so on, so we had to jack up the fees to quite a high level to survive for the first few years as soon as we could. we brought them down now they 're the same as everybody else's so that was that and I think that that fact that the fees were high was part of it, but the main part of it, I think was independent now Steve Pinker so did uh, my, my uh, great chairman visiting a prof at the college big supporter of the college uh, he was dining with me uh, in the very first term, and we were talking about the, the controversy and he said you know what explains it it's the following joke how many professors does it take to change a light bulb and the answer is change <laughs> they didn't like the idea of uh, <laughs> You know, of, of there being something new that—that that was, you know, <laughs> that's a, speaks to the point about higher education being conservative. You know. But the, the controversy died down very, very quickly as soon as, as soon as my colleagues elsewhere in the university world saw that we were serious about what we were doing and that we were doing it very well. You know, the controversy died away, and uh, we got a PR company to have a look at the reception um, in the press, uh, you know, in the media of what. what uh, People said about the college, and most of it—over 70 percent of it—was very, very positive. Um, but if it was was negative, um, and it's great truth about the media is that positive stories only ever occur once and negative stories are repeated and repeated. So it gave a misleading impression. impression. Mm-hmm.
1: But you presumably are in a position where you can now charge the same level of fees as other universities yeah. do because your enrollments are at such a... Yes,
2: yes, because our enrollments uh, are up. And uh, we're now... W- we've been growing uh, ever since we started, bit by bit, because we have to... Firstly, it's a, it's a very small institution by design. When you're teaching one-to-one, you need a very high staff-student ratio and you've got to be... And to keep that collegial ethos, you know, we don't want to have thousands of students, we want hundreds rather than thousands. So we're small by design, and we, um, every increment in student numbers has to be matched by faculty and facilities. So it has to be meticulously planned. It's really interesting. By the way, you know, I had two great things on my side when I founded this college. One was enthusiasm, and the other was ignorance. I didn't have no idea at all what was going to be involved. I didn't know anything. I couldn't even add two and two together to do the sums for the accounts or anything else. Okay. And fortunately, I managed to get some very, very good people. I have got wonderful um, faculty and, and staff uh, to help me. But I've learned a lot. I have to say, I didn't even know so many things I didn't know existed uh, on sort of admin and, and uh, uh, money and what have you. And one thing that I learned very quickly is that planning in higher education has a minimum horizon of 18 months, minimum. Actually our planning stretches ahead two to three years, we're thinking about student intake and facilities and uh, recruiting some more faculty and so on for 2020, 2021, that kind of thing, and we sit and and we're doing that now, you know, so you, and, and of course uh the, the one the big variable is the, the student intake. Are you going to increase by uh, 4% or by 7% or 3% or 9% or something? Uh, so it, it's a um, fascinating sort of intellectual jigsaw puzzle that you're busy with all the time.
1: So is there, is there a need for more institutions like the new College of the Humanities? Presumably one of the impetuses for starting it up was not just a desire to bring back the teaching, mo- Tutorial yeah. Teaching Model, but a sense that the humanities were in some sense losing out, were yes. embattled yes. Um, as they are uh, kind of empirically in both the states and places like Australia and New Zealand. Um, uh, do we need more places along the lines of the NCAH?
2: Yes, we do, and, and we would welcome it, actually, because we're the only uh, you know, sort of high-end, very aspirational, high-quality, uh, small humanities-dedicated institution in the UK and if, if there were some others, supposing one opened in Liverpool or, or in Edinburgh or something, that, that would be terrific because then you don't have to explain yourself every time. Then there is a, an arena and then people understand that, that uh, you know, there are folks doing this kind of thing. I should point out by the way that, that um, our undergraduates who do their degree studies are also compulsorily have to do our diploma which is a, an ad, a, a, a kind of separate thing that we've devised in order to provide the T crossbar to our teaching model. I call it a T-shaped model because the stem is the in-depth and the T is the breadth, liberal arts kind of breadth. And they have, they have to do logic and critical thinking, they've got to think about thinking, think about inquiry, think about arguments, think about the nature of research. Be very reflective and self-aware about how they make a case, how they substantiate it, how they examine somebody else's arguments. That's terribly important. For most of the uh, history of universities, the assumption was that people would pick up how to do that by studying their subjects. Of course they do, but if you can make them self-conscious about it, all the better. Then. An educated person must have an intelligent layperson's understanding of the major areas of science. Neuroscience, evolutionary biology and its impact on medicine uh, and pharmacology. Um, some sense of the great adventure of cosmology and particle physics. So they have to do a science literacy program. Uh, and it's it's science for non-scientists. So there's no white coats and maths. And it's contributed to by some outstanding scientists who are so knowledgeable about their discipline, that they're very good communicators. So Richard Dawkins, I mentioned him, he comes and talks about evolutionary biology to to my students. Uh, To Gin Deverdi, who's one of the lead scientists at CERN on the Large Hadron Collider, he comes. Um, Steve Pinker comes to talk about psychology and uh, uh, psycholinguistics and so on. Thirdly, all the students have to do applied ethics. That's uh, business ethics, medical ethics, environmental ethics, public ethics. So, that they've thought about and discussed and explored some of the great dilemmas that we meet as a society and as individuals. I mean, dile- the whole point about dilemma in, in ethics is that the arguments of both sides are equally compelling and it's very hard to make choices. And they should wrestle with that and, and try to work something out. And finally, they all do what we call our professional program, or it's actually called the launch program. I just want to take a moment to explain to you how absolutely brilliant this name is because New College of the Humanities is abbreviated as NCH. So you look at the word launch, L-A-U, N-C-H. So it's a launch program, and it's about their careers and what happens to them after they leave and they have to study sort of, uh, They of have to, you know, basic financial literacy, how to read a balance sheet, how to work together as members of a team, how to uh, make a pitch, a you know, sort of entrepreneurial pitch and so on. So we do, we, they do this strand all the way through their three years. And I say to my students, I say, look, most of you want to get rich, this will help you. Some of you want to bring down the capitalist system, this will help you too, because you've got to know the enemy from within. So everybody enjoys it, and they all love that sort of practical side of it, and I want them to see... You're studying medieval monasticism in, you know, upper Austria. What's the connection between the lives of these monks? And something that you might do in your working life now. You know, Ian e. Forster, two of my favorite uh, um, mottos come, one from Ian e. Forster, only connect, you know that one. And the other one from, from uh, T.S. Eliot, Eliot, who said, the great method, there's only one method, it's the great method, it is to be intelligent. And that's the thing that I I want my students to be.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.